as a pastor or staff member of a church. It is common to experience compassion fatigue and find that you spend so much time caring for others, you're not caring for yourself. Saga wants to help foster healthy churches by facilitating the support of the emotional, mental, and relational health of their leaders. As a partner of Saga, pastors and staff can confidently and easily begin their journey by being uniquely matched to a therapist that best fits their needs. To learn more about a church partnership with Saga, go to sagacenter.org. That's S-A-G-A center.org. Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Welcome to Leading Simple. My name is Rusty George. Every week around here, we try to just provide a little bit of insight to make following Jesus and leading others a little bit more simple. Here's an issue that all of us have wrestled with, and that is, can God's grace still forgive me? Can God's grace even forgive me? In other words, have we ever gone one sin too far? And we tend to think about people that have done the worst of the worst and wonder if God actually has the ability to forgive them for their sin as well. And maybe not the ability, but the willingness to. Well, you might remember back in the 90s, there was an arrest that was made in Milwaukee, Wisconsin of a young man named Jeffrey Dahmer. And we were horrified to learn that over the last 13 years, this man had killed and dismembered and sometimes eaten 17 individual men. And it was such a horrific event that the nation was captivated by this. And soon the name Jeffrey Dahmer became synonymous with the most extreme, the worst of the worst, and maybe somebody beyond the grace of God. And yet, many of us were surprised to learn that during his time in prison, he actually gave his life to Christ. Well, I had a chance to track down the man who baptized Jeffrey Dahmer, a pastor by the name of Roy Ratcliffe. He still resides up in Wisconsin, and we sat down over a podcast interview and had a chance to talk about, was Jeff sincere? What was his relationship like with Jeff? And let's talk about God's grace. I think today's going to be interesting, but also inspiring for you, and I know you're going to want to share this with somebody else. So here's my conversation with Pastor Roy Ratcliffe. Well, Roy Ratcliffe, thank you so much for joining us, and we're so grateful that you would take some time to be with us. For our listeners that don't know much about you, tell us a little bit about yourself, just uh, where you live and ministry and kind of life journey. I've been a minister. Uh, I was a minister for 45 years. Uh, I was uh, asked to retire after uh, that length of time, and so I, I do something else now. But uh, I, I served uh, uh, three different churches, once in Andover, Kansas, for five years, and then also Wisconsin for 15 years, and then in Madison, it was in 25 years. So that gives you some idea how where I was and how, how long I've been there. Um, the uh, prison ministry was a new thing that came on to me when I moved to Madison. Shortly after I moved to Madison, I, was, I got the call about Jeffrey Dahmer. And after uh, Jeff's death, a year later, I was interviewed uh, about uh, what it was like. And then an inmate saw that and said, hey, you saw Jeff, why don't you come see me? And then another inmate, and then another inmate, and then another inmate. Before you know it, I had a bunch that I was I was seeing every month. So uh, I had a, a ministry that kind of developed all just out, out of all of that. And that was kind of an amazing thing for, for me there. Other than that, just kind of a general ho-hum minister, you know, uh, uh, 
preaching sermons, uh, uh, funerals, uh, weddings, uh, you know, the various things that, that occur as to how, how you minister to people. Okay, so that is all fascinating, but you stopped me in my tracks when you said Andover, Kansas. I grew up there. Oh, really? I didn't know anybody knew that that city outside of Wichita. What years were you there? I was in Andover from 1970 to 1975. Okay, yeah, we would have we would have been in the same town. So, what church were you serving there? It was uh, it was uh, it was called the Andover Church of Christ. It was uh, uh, on the main drag running north and south off of uh, uh, what what was basically the, the the main road of Andover, I guess you would call it. Uh, yep. A little bit north of uh, the the main highway, which is was at fifty four. So I can't recall what the highway was now, but. It was a highway that went into Wichita, and, and, and we were about a mile and a half north of that. That is amazing. On, I guess it was called Andover Road. I'm sure I thought it was called just Andover Road, yeah. It was, and it still is. There's uh, there's now two high schools on that road, but when I was there, uh, it was just one. Well, that's uh, that's pretty impressive. I, I had no idea uh, that of our conversation today that it would end up talking about Andover, Kansas. Wow. Fascinating. Okay, well, that's between you and me. I, I know our listeners want to know... How did you get the contact with Jeffrey Dahmer? I mean, I know a little bit it was kind of time and place, but were you kind of uh, somebody that the prison would reach out to from time to time? Were you, uh, did you know much about his situation other than the press? Uh, tell us a little bit about that connection. No, I was quite ignorant. Uh, I had seen uh, and heard about him on the television and so forth. And so I thought, well, that's kind of strange. It's kind of odd. Uh, that, that's too bad and so forth. And uh, I got a phone call from a fellow minister in Milwaukee who said that he'd gotten a phone call from someone asking that, someone, that an inmate wanted to be baptized. And since I was closer to the prison uh, than he was, would I please go uh, take care of it? So I thought, okay, sure. What's the prisoner's name? And the guy says, you might want to sit down for this. It's Jeffrey Dahmer. Oh, so that's how, that's how I, I got the, my name connected to his. As a matter of then calling up the, the chaplain and finding out uh, if this was really something that was, was true, and if so, uh, when could we uh, arrange a time to come visit with him and, and see him and talk with him. Uh, the whole story actually began a little bit earlier than that. Uh, it, it's kind of odd. Um, Jeff had been interviewed by Stone Phillips on a national television thing where Stone Phillips had really pressed Jeff about his crimes and why he did the crimes, and Jeff had said, talked about his evil urges. And two people who were watching it across the nation, one was in Oklahoma and the other was in, was in uh, Virginia. They saw it, and, and uh, the one in Oklahoma was a prison minister, and the one in, in Virginia was a, a Bible correspondence uh, teacher. That she sent out correspondence, of course, and so forth. And they both said, someone needs to hear about Jesus, that man does. And so they sent him a Bible, uh, Bible correspondence courses. Hmm. Ironically, since they were of the same faith that Jeff's parents were, Jeff received these things and read through them and then wrote at the end of each one, I want to be baptized, find someone to baptize me. Wow. Well, you're in Oklahoma, you don't know much about Wisconsin. You're in Virginia, you don't know much about Wisconsin. So you start making phone calls, try to find somebody somewhere. And the guy in Oklahoma finally reached someone. He reached the guy in Milwaukee who said, oh, I know someone who could do it. He's, he's closer and he'll take care of it for you. And that's pretty, pretty much how I, I, I got hmm. into the whole thing. So it's really kind of interesting how the whole thing got, got wrapped around uh it's really quite an amazing story in in itself just that part alone Mm -hmm. these are all members of the church of christ which is what i was a part of too so 
So it's kind of interesting that, that this, how, how that all worked together. When I first met Jeff, one of the first questions I asked him after I asked him, why do you want to be baptized? I mean, what, what do you know about baptism? What, what's all this about as far as you're concerned? And he starts quoting scriptures to me and kind of, it was obvious that he actually read the scriptures. So I was, I was surprised about that. So I said, well, what's your religious background? And he said, it was the church of Christ. And I was kind of like, what? <laughs> you're the same faith I am. You know, that, that's, that's amazing. Yeah. My, he said, my, my father used to take me to church when I was a little boy, but suddenly just stopped going to church. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, what if uh, he'd continued going to church? What if uh, Jeff, as a boy, had gone through all the experiences <clears throat> our young people go through, you know, they, uh, weekly Bible classes and, and summers, uh, bo- uh, summer vacation or, or uh, uh, vacation Bible schools and, you know, go to, summer, go, to, go to Christian camps and all kinds of things. Would that have made a difference? Well, of course, I don't know the answer to that, but I can't help but be prejudiced in my own mm-hmm. uh, mind to say, well, yeah, I think it probably would have helped. I, I, I would guess. I'm kind of thinking, wow, what a, what a shame. How, what an example of, of leaving your faith, what effect it has upon your children. Uh, I thought that was a really powerful moment for me anyway. Not meaning trying to put Lionel Dahmer down, but I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the example that I've, I've re- always wrestled with as, as a minister is, is uh, parents maintaining their faith and the effect they're having their faith has on their children. Children tend to uh, inherit and tend tend to to, uh, continue on with the faith of their parents. That's usually the way it goes. Uh, You know, uh, a Jewish child usually becomes a Jewish person. A Muslim child usually becomes a Muslim person, depending on what family they're in. So we tend to follow the path that our parents have set for us. And that, that pretty much was the case, I think, with Jeff as well, too. When you first met him, you, you by this point knew a little bit more about him. Uh, what was your, your your first impression like? You mentioned that he quoted a lot of scripture. Were you were you nervous? Were you? Uh, I mean, obviously, as a as a pastor, you you've encountered a lot of different people, a lot of different situations, and you know we're we're certainly taught and believe to lead with the grace of God first. But this is a pretty interesting situation. Did you find yourself a little apprehensive or a little bit? Um, nervous about the whole inter- encounter? I had never been to a prison before. I'd never uh, visited prisoners, so this was a whole new experience for me. I, I had some idea of what, what to expect. I mean, they're, they're, you're, you're ele- electronically locked doors. I mean, that's all part of the process. Uh, that's a little bit intimidating and so forth. So I, I didn't know quite what to expect. I, I really anticipated s- sitting across from him with a glass partition between us or talking on the phone or or uh, on a television with him. I didn't expect to be, to be in person. So I was quite surprised when they uh, escorted me to a little room uh, about 10 foot by 12 foot with table and chairs. And we sit down and so, okay, I'll sit down. And a few minutes later, then Jeffrey Dahmer comes into the room and closes the door and shakes my hand and sits down across from me. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I'm in a room with a man that's killed a lot of other people. Uh, you know, uh, uh, it makes you kind of wonder if, if you have a, if you're in danger to what was going. Of course, I'm in a prison, so he's not going to try anything. I don't think, but and you have you have kind of a moment there, kind of think, well, this is not exactly what I thought it was going to be. This is really quite surprising. So yeah, there's a certain nervousness on my part as to what what we do here. One of the tricks you do as a minister, if you're speaking before people and, and you're always dealing with the question of nervousness in front of a crowd. Is, is to distract yourself from that nervousness, is to think, well, what am I here to talk about? Okay, what do I want to say? So I, I start thinking, I want to talk to him about baptism. So I start thinking, 
why do you want to be baptized? And we started talking with him and so forth. And before I knew it, I'd, I wasn't nervous anymore. I was just talking with a person who was questioning uh, questions about baptism. When he uh, convinced me that he had uh, studied enough of the scripture to actually understand what baptism is all about, I said, okay, uh, I'll baptize you. I just, I just had to figure out how, how we're going to do this because prisons aren't, don't build baptistries when they build prisons. I mean, that's not something that's part of their, <laughs> their, their agenda, you know. So, uh, and he heaved a sigh, and I remember thinking, why'd you make that sound? In fact, I asked him, why'd you make that sound? He said, because I was really nervous about meeting you. I thought, well, that was kind of funny. I was nervous about meeting him, and he was nervous about meeting me. Why were you nervous about meeting me, I asked. And he said, because I was afraid you're going to say, you've been too evil, too wicked, too sinful to be baptized. You, you, you don't qualify because of your, your evilness and so, and so forth. Well, that thought never entered my head. That wasn't the question that I'd, I'd, I'd raised in my mind. My, my question wasn't whether I, he could be baptized. The question was, was, did he understand what baptism was about? And what, what we're trying to accomplish here. So that was that was all I was dealing with. Hmm. But I thought that was an interesting little moment there that we had, uh, and it kind of dispelled both my nervousness and his nervousness as well by, by dealing with the fact that, okay, uh, what you thought was impossible is not necessarily impossible. We're going to try and make it happen. And so then it was simply a matter of finding out from the chaplain, well, what can we do about this baptistry question? And that was a whole other little story in itself to, the chaplain wanted me to find a place that would donate a baptistry to the prison. Uh, he wanted to donate it because if they spent money on it, then they'd have to spend an equal amount of money for the Muslims and for the Hindus and for the American Native Indians and you know every every other group that makes a religious claim altogether. So, it, but if it was donated, well, then it was just a gift that they they, they have. And I I, uh, I did some research and I did find a place that makes a, a baptism for, for prisons. Where it's a community table, you take the top off, and there's a little baptistry thing. So I called him back and said, I found a, a communion table with the they can make it to a baptistry uh, that, that that would work. And he said, Well, we've already got a communion table. I said, well, no, You kind of <laughs> missed the point. The whole point about the baptistry, not the communion table. He said, But we have a tub. Would that work? And so he begins to describe this tub, uh, about three foot by four foot, about eighteen inches deep. I said, Well, that should be enough. Because for in my faith, it's it's a, a full body immersion, so that was a, a big deal. Right. Well, he ought to be able to get into that. So yeah, we'll we'll, we'll do that. It's it's a tub they use for their prisoners when they hurt their backs. It was the little whirlpool thing and so forth. So okay, we'll do that. So does it need to be moved to the sanctuary? No, we can walk to it. So uh, that's what we decided to do. So it was a matter of simply setting the date for when we were going to do the baptism and, and, and uh, getting going going uh, and, and following through with it. But it was kind of funny how that whole thing kind of worked out. It, it, what, do you, what you expect to happen doesn't always happen. You know, it, it, things are usually different, a little different turn here and there. The baptistry that you found that was part communion table, part baptistry, uh, I don't suppose that was built by American Rehabilitation Ministries in Joplin, Missouri, was it? Yes, exactly. That's what exactly what it was, yes. <laughs> I went to school right down the street from that place for Bible College, Ozark Christian College. So... Uh, it's amazing how many uh, prisons they've outfitted with those. And obviously they didn't in your case, but it was close. Okay, so I, I want to I ask you some, uh, a couple of questions that, that you may not know, but you can uh, speculate on. But, you know, so much has been made since Jeffrey Dahmer to try to pin his actions on genetics or kind of the psychopath gene or perhaps... Um, 
you know, he really couldn't help himself. They even, you know, we're talking about in the, in the movie about do we have his brain, you know, studied and those kind of things. And I'm not taking anything away from the science part of that, but knowing what you know now and having spent time with him, did you sense, okay, there seems to be obviously something chemical that's off, but there's also just a lot of really bad things that happen. I mean, we have the divorce, we have abuse, we have neglect, we have no friends, um, a lack of church, as we already talked about. Was it all just kind of this mix of things that created and awoke this monster within him? Or do you, do you feel like you know uh, he was just possessed in those moments? Um, or was it just, man, this is just genetic and it was bound to come out no matter what happened? Just, and, and I know you're not a doctor, but what, what, what are your thoughts now, years later? Yeah, uh, uh, why did he do the crimes? Why did he commit the crimes? That's a question that everybody's always wanted to know answers to. Uh, my opinion is based upon uh, the fact that I, I grew to love him, grew to know him a little bit. So perhaps my viewpoint's a little bit softened. Uh, it's also based on the fact that I've spent years with people and have seen people do things that they shouldn't have done and so forth. Uh, one of my thinking is that I've observed that we all lose our minds from time to time. And when we lose our minds, we don't know that we've lost our minds. And we think we're making rational decisions and we do things that are kind of foolish and stupid and, uh, along, along the way. And it's kind of like the particle sun. He, he eventually comes to his senses and says, well, why am I doing this? Uh, in my father's house, there's, there's plenty of food. I don't need to be starving, looking at the pig's food and say, I want to eat the pig's food. Or, or the man with all the demons that, that's uh, been cast out of him and they get going to the pigs and the people of the village come and they see that he's in his right mind. He wasn't in his right mind before. Uh, of course, that one is because of the, the demon possession and so forth. But it kind of illustrates to me the fact that sometimes uh, we get out of focus. We, we lose what, what's going on. And we don't know that we've lost our mind until we start asking ourselves the, a basic question. Hmm. Why did I do that? Uh, why did I say those things? Why, what, what's, what's the matter with me? That, that's not what I should be. And that's telling you that you begin to come back to your senses and so forth. Uh, at the end of his trial, Jeff would self-diagnose himself and say, I, I realize now that I was sick. Hmm. Well, you can realize that he was sick. He's beginning to ask those sorts of questions about himself. He's beginning to see that well, what I was doing just wasn't right. It, it just doesn't make any sense. A second idea that is associated with the same things comes from the book of James, chapter one, where James uh, cautions the, the reader: don't be, uh, don't say you're tempted by God. God doesn't tempt anyone, but each one is tempted when he then is led into this sinfulness. And basically, the the the, the way the verb changes from the active to the passive is amazing to me. So, Suddenly, you're not just the active person involved in evil, but suddenly evil's taken hold of you. And so you're dragged away, you know, and, and, and you have the sense of being uh, raped because you become impregnated, you know, against your will, you know, and, and then you have a baby and the baby becomes sin and the, and the sin goes up, it becomes death. You have, you have your whole, whole life is played out in front of you. And to me, it tells me simply this, that evil is a force that is much more powerful than we think it is. Uh, and that uh, once you step into that, uh, many times you cannot pull yourself out by yourself. Hmm. So I think to, uh, on the one hand, Jeff uh, lost his focus because there was no focus on God. People used to ask me when I first started uh, being interviewed about Jeff, why did he do these things? And of course, I didn't know the answer, but my best guess as a minister was 
if there's no place for God in your heart, then there's no limit to the evil that you can do. Wow. And I still believe that today. I think I think knowing about God or believing God puts a limit on what evil you do and so forth. So, but I think that I, I, what I'm talking about is I think Jeff got himself involved in evil that was beyond his ability to to resist and became more powerful and began to control him. Hmm. And he couldn't he, he couldn't figure out how to get out of it. When he was first in prison, when I first met him, he was happy that he was in prison because now there was some outside force that was controlling him that he couldn't control himself. So he didn't he didn't seem to know how to con control this this evilness that that was within him. I had another inmate later on that would describe his uh, addiction to uh, child uh, uh, abuse by saying that there was a beast inside of him and it scared him and so forth. And, and, and he had also been baptized. And I said, yes, there's a beast inside of you, but there's some, there's a force even greater than the beast that's inside of you. And you've got to look at that force and that force is Jesus Christ. Jesus can overcome the beast inside of you. And I think that's what eventually happened with Jeff. I think he got lost. He got swept up in, in, in evil that was greater than he could control. And before you know it, one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. And before you know it, he, he's doing things that just are in, incapable for us to understand. I do think that the cannibal thing was a, a mechanism that he used to defend himself against people. I don't think he was as much of a cannibal as we like to make him out to be. To me, he confessed eating only one bicep muscle. To another reporter, he confessed eating a heart. When he was arrested, he made a big deal about these parts I was saving to eat for later. So he made a big deal about about making the point that he was a cannibal. Uh, a guard told me about how Jeff one time said within the guard's hearing, but no one else could hear, uh, to see if the guard would jump. He, Jeff said, I bite. What makes the guard jump? Well, of course, that's the whole idea. He's playing with the idea of being a cannibal. So, uh, And the idea of a cannibal persona is, it attracts attention, which Jeff wanted desperately. I want some attention. But at the same time, I said, don't get too close to me. I don't trust you. Don't get too close to me because I I will bite you. I will eat you. I, I will kill you. Something along, along those lines. Uh, he, uh, people who actually know cannibals say that Jeff doesn't, doesn't behave like a normal, normal, if there's normal, cannibal would behave. Uh, when my brother was in the Navy, he actually met a cannibal who, who told him, told my brother while he was sitting on a dock, your legs would make a good meal for my family. Well, that's kind of the way cannibals think. But Jeff didn't really talk to people like, oh, your, your brain would be good for me. Or, or, I'm looking forward to eating your heart. He didn't do that sort of stuff. That just wasn't the thing he was thinking about. Hmm. But it's a thing that kind of developed, it kind of evolved as, as, he, as he got into the flow of, of evil. Sorry, kind of pulled string out of my neck, and I just can't see stop talking. But anyway, <laughs> no, this is fascinating. <laughs> that's my theory as to why Jeff did the things that he did, and I may be wrong. That's no, I, I think you're you're dead on, and I think you dropped some amazing truth there. By the way, for all of our listeners, so uh, you mentioned that when you got to him, he had already been doing a Bible correspondence class. He'd been learning about the Bible. Did he indicate to you what stories or verses from the Bible? grabbed his attention in such a way that it began to wake him up. It began to bring light into his darkness. It began to make him think that maybe he, even he could be forgiven. Jeff didn't really bring about any verses that had special meaning for him in the, other than the verses that said, you need to be baptized and things along those lines. Um, one of the things I learned about Jeff, especially after his death, and I talked to his, his father, 
and and passed the message to his father that his father didn't know about. Uh, Jeff claimed, and he was committing his crimes, that he was an atheist and an evolutionist, and kind of argued that you know, as animals eat animals, and since we're all animals, then you know, it's natural for animals to eat animals, things like that. And uh, he, he and Lina had argued uh, more vehemently over that subject than any other subject at all. Hmm. After uh, Jeff's younger brother, David, went to college, he got connected with a church group and he was baptized and he came home and said to his dad, dad, you need to go to, back to church. Hmm. So Lionel went back to church and when he went back to church, they happened to be having a, an evolution seminar that is a dealing with, with uh, creationism versus evolution. And Lionel said, well, this is exactly the kind of stuff that Jeff and I argued about. So he scooped up as much of the material as he could and sent it to Jeff. Now, exactly when this occurred is unclear to me, whether it was before the incar uh, incarceration or after the incar I, I don't quite know. I doubt it was actually because I don't think that the prison would have allowed him to receive those materials. But anyway, Jeff received the material and began working his way through the material. And Jeff told me that was what turned his mind from being an atheist to becoming a believer in God. Hmm. I would tell Lionel that after Jeff's death, Lionel didn't know this. This was not this was this is something you would think that son would have said to father, but they didn't talk about those sorts of things. Uh, another question was, Jeff wanted to know why they quit going to church. And I had to ask Lionel, why did you quit going to church? As he explained that there was such an argument between him and his wife because Lionel would explain in his book, he thought she was going through bipolar issues. He's not a doctor, but that's kind of what he believes. Mm -hmm. Anyway, that, that's what he thought anyway. And that his going to church with Jeff gave her a guilt trip. And so she was arguing with him. And Lionel's not the kind of man who can deal with uh, argumentation. So Lionel just decided, okay, I'm just going to quit going to church altogether. I'll read my Bible at home. I'll eat communion at home. I'm not going to deal with that at all. And so that's that was Lionel's thinking. But it's never explained to Jeff. And so you have these this, these important informations that you think father and son, son to father, you think they talk about, but they never, never really talked about. Mm. So uh, at any rate, I was able to tell uh, Lionel that these materials is what turned Jeff around and got Jeff to thinking about faith in God and believing in God and what, what being a believer in God was really, really all about. Later on, Jeff would ask if I could find these materials and have them sent to his mother because his mother had given up her faith too. So Jeff kind of had a, a feeling of evangelism, if you would, uh, toward about uh, uh, spreading the message or spreading the word to those he thought could use it. It helped me, maybe it would help her too. Uh, that's what he's thinking. So, but at any rate, uh, uh, I don't know that he had any special passage that, that opened his mind up more than anything else. He was mostly concerned about making things right. He had done things wrong all his life, so he wanted to make sure he did things right. Hmm. So he spent time arguing with me about the baptismal formula. What do you say when you baptize someone in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, or in the name of Jesus only? That's all because that's what the book of Acts has said, and that's what... Uh, other inmates had told him and so forth. So he argued about that. He argued about what translation the Bible could use, other, other translations were wrong. You know, uh, things that were relatively uh, minor things as far as I was concerned, but to him, they were big issues because he said, I've done things wrong so many much in my life. I want to make sure I get it right this time. So that, that was his main focus was, was getting himself right, whatever right meant and to him right meant getting back to the bible and getting back to what his father's faith was all about so you you mentioned that you've worked with many inmates now and i'm sure you've had a chance to baptize many but this the day of jeff's baptism 
Was it, what was it like? Was it, uh, was it unique? Was it different in any way? Did it feel the same? Did, sometimes people get baptized and they immediately feel this, this wave of light. They feel this release of, of guilt or pain, or was it more of a kind of a, hey, I did the next right thing and I'll keep making the next right decision. Tell me what you remember about that day. I had gotten, uh, gotten to the prison and uh, met Jeff uh, in the uh, chaplain's office where I took his confession of faith because uh, I hadn't asked him yet if he believed. I thought it was obvious, but, but he said, well, yeah, uh, he believes in Jesus. So then uh, two uh, uh, guards escorted the, the chaplain, myself, and Jeff down a hallway to where the uh, tub was. And on the way, we passed prisoners coming from the opposite direction, carrying mops and brooms and you know, cleaning supplies and things like that. And they looked up and they saw Jeff and they said, hey, J.D., how's it going? And he said, hey, I'm going to be baptized today. And you had that sense of, of happiness or joy that they all seemed to have. I felt like if they were allowed to touch you, they were all giving each other high fives as they walked down the down the uh, the hallway. And I mentioned that only because the question of how Jeff related to other prisoners is, is an important issue later on. You know, how does he get along with other prisoners? He seemed to have a, a friendly relationship with them, and they had a friendly relationship with him. We got down there to the place, and the chaplain pulls out a little outfit that apparently his wife had made, a little polyester white outfit that Jeff could wear while being baptized, so he wasn't baptized in his prison clothes. So Jeff steps into the uh, the room with the, with the tub, and an uh, officer, as he changed his clothes, and I'm standing out in the hallway with the chaplain and the other uh, guard. And while we're waiting for Jeff to get his clothes changed, the, the chaplain and the guards start telling little baptismal stories of their own about their niece or their granddaughter or their daughter getting baptized. And I got the sense that they understood that this was kind of a special moment. It wasn't just something passing through, just just to pass the time. It's kind of a special meaning to it. So I thought, well, that's kind of a, a special, uh, a beautiful moment uh, there. Mm-hmm. Then the doors opened up, and I and I and I go into the room, and Jeff has already climbed to the tub, and it's a very small thing, so he's in a fetal position, sideways, you know, looking up at me with his head sticking out of the water. And I said, "Okay." Then I, I put my hand and said, "Okay, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit for the forgiveness of your sins." And I push his head under, and then when he comes back up. I said, "Welcome to the family of God." I said, "Well, thank you. You know, you appreciate that so much." And he climbs out, and he begins to get dressed. We we step out while he, he's changing his clothes and so forth. And so that was that was kind of it. Uh, it's a little bit over dramatized on the Netflix show where they got him laying down backwards. <laughs> there was no room to lay down backwards. It was a tiny little thing. He was uh, in a fetal position and so forth. And they had me grabbing his shoulder saying, yeah, you're saved. Well, I didn't do that. It simply said, welcome to the family of God, because that, that was obvious. Uh, we, 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 were, were, we were dealing with the issue of his sins and so forth and, and, and coming through on the other side. So, so there was a sense of, I think, relief on his part anyway that he was happy, he was glad. Uh, it, it hadn't occurred to him that there was a family of God that he was a part of now. That was kind of new to him. And then we were escorted back to the chaplain's office where I said, okay, I need to I need to meet with him on a regular basis because in my mind, he's just been uh, baptized. He's born uh, born anew, and uh, he needs instruction. He needs to be able to continue on. And so the chaplain made up what was called a permanent pastoral pass, and so every Wednesday from that point on, I was able to go to the prison and visit with Jeff for an hour. And we could talk about anything he wanted to talk about. I, there are things I wanted to talk about, but I let him decide what he wanted to talk about because those are what's more important to him. And that's pretty much how we passed our time from that point on. It was always an hour every Wednesday where we would meet together to, to read either things of the scriptures and, and study or talk about whatever he was concerned about, you know, uh, you know like the 
what translation of the Bible to use and, you know, how he's going to have communion and, and things of that nature. Those, those issues that kind of bothered him as how, how, how do we, how do we make this thing work here in this prison setting and so forth? A lot of people think that we talk quite a bit about his crimes. No, we didn't talk about his crimes. I really wasn't worried about how he got to where he, how, how he got here. The question was, where do we go from now on? That was the issue that we, we were dealing with. How, how do we live a Christian life in this kind of setting? Right. And so my, my uh, first advice was, uh, whenever there's a church uh, service, attend. It doesn't matter whether it's the same denomination or different denomination. At, at least you're surrounding yourself with people who have a faith in Christ. And so try to absorb as much faith from them as they can and let them get, get some faith from you as well, too. And I've never really regretted that advice of those of some in my faith who said, no, no, you got to be separate. You got to stay apart. I'm sorry. That's not my understanding of what it means to be a Christian. Hmm. So at any rate, that, that tells a little bit about the day itself of the baptism. It's kind of a special day, kind of a beautiful day. Odd because it was a, we had a full solar eclipse that day. So it was dark. <laughs> and it was the day that uh, John Wayne Gacy was executed that day. Someone made the point, well, two men died that day. One died from a uh, from committing his crimes, and another man died in his sins. You know, so I thought, okay, well, that's a nice way of putting it. So wow. But anyway, that's a couple little little tidbits about that day that make it special. I did not know that. All right, um, you know, when, when you deal with somebody who, um, and, and this is a, is true for any of us, we have that Damascus Road experience. We decide to put our faith in Jesus. We're baptized. But for all of us, the way the enemy tries to get at us is to remember what you uh, have done and that constant memory of, oh, I did this wrong. There's no way God could forgive me. Did, did Jeff struggle with the idea of being fully forgiven? Did he wrestle with the grace of God, like even for me, or was he just kind of ready to move on? Hey, let me interrupt this podcast for just a second to remind you, if you're not taking care of your mental health, nobody is. Step up and go check out sagacenter.org to find out more. All right, back to our show. I don't know that he really gave it that much uh, of deep thought. Uh, I know later on he felt very remorseful. He said he felt very remorseful of the crimes he had committed and felt like he should have been put to death by the state. To which I said, well, yes, I agree. You probably should have been put to death by the state. The things you, you did were, were worthy of death. And then he kind of has a troubled look on his face and said, well, then if that's the case, now that I'm a Christian, he says, Am I sinning by living? You're implying, should I kill myself or should I uh, arrange for someone to kill me? So something along those lines. And of course, <coughs> he waits till the guards give me the two minutes. You know, you only have two minutes to talk before you got your, your time is up. So I don't really have time to really get into this now. I said, okay, well, next week we're going to study Romans chapter 13. Uh, and, and we get the idea of what's a Christian's relationship to the state and that sort of stuff. And then, then we'll deal with the, these questions here. And so the next week we came back, and so we spent some time studying about how the state is the agent of God for wrath and so forth, and how a, a sword has been put into the hand of the state. And uh, so be, be uh, don't you know don't uh, don't play around with this idea of you know, that kind of stuff. I said now, of course, here in Wisconsin, the, the Wisconsin has chosen to lay its sword down. And picked up a rod, so they'd rather chastise you rather than rather than, than kill you, and so that's that's kind of uh, that's what they decided to. So, what is a Christian response? Well, the opening verses is submit to the governing authorities. So, whatever the governing authorities decide, that's what we're going to submit to. So that was that kind of answered that question there. And then we launched into the question of suicide. I at one time had been suicidal myself. I understood 
kind of how he felt or how you feel about that. Uh, at one time, I was con people had convinced me that I had wasted my time trying to become a preacher and that maybe I shouldn't have been uh, even trying to, to talk to people about Christ and so forth like that. And, and that was a deep psychological injury for me. Mm. And I had a very hard time dealing with that. And, and I just wished I, I was dead. And I, I prayed to God that God would take me. To, you know, it's kind of the Elijah story. Take me because I'm the only one, you know, that, that sort of stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And eventually my, my wife would help me to come out of that and see that how, how ridiculously uh, how, how silly that was. But it kind of dealt with the question of, of did he feel like he had been forgiven? Well, as far as I know, he had no issue with that. He, he was only worried about whether or not he should have been put to death because of what his crimes were going to be like. Like the state had not fulfilled its obligation to punish him. That, that, that was all he was concerned about. And I suppose he was concerned about that because that's what people think. Mm -hmm. That's what people are talking about. When they, you hear the Jeffrey Dahmer story, all everyone wants to know is, well, did he go to hell? Mm -hmm. uh, that's really all that matters. You know, he, he should be he should be punished for what he did. Yes, uh, if, if he didn't believe in Jesus, if there's no sense of, of uh, relying upon God, there's, there's no sense of forgiveness. People have a hard time comprehending the forgiveness of God. They just have a hard time just grasping the idea that God could be a forgiving God. Mm -hmm. And they really have the wrong concept of what God is, is really all about. And that, that's part of, part of the problem. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm getting preachy, so I need to stop doing that. No, I, I love it. Um, and and I, I wanted to go there because I think that, you know, from the perspective of the victims, uh, their families, the comfort that, that many of them are given is, well, you know, he's been arrested now, he'll pay for what he did. Okay, well, in, in your state, you're not going to do uh, capital punishment, so he's not going to be executed. He ends up dying uh, a few years after being incarcerated, so he doesn't even have to live, you know, his entire life in, in prison for like the next 30 years. Um, so then the only, you know, recourse is, well, at least he'll have to pay for his crimes in eternity in hell. And now he's been forgiven. What do you say to the families of the victims that feel like, you know, Jeff took everything from us and now he's been let off the hook? It's interesting you asked that question because I actually had an experience with one of the victim's uh, relatives. At his memorial service, uh, Lionel came uh, from Milwaukee with a, 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 a crew that was to, to film it all sorts because he didn't trust anybody else. And a young woman was with him who had, was a sister of one of the victims that Jeff uh, had killed. And uh, so I thought, well, that's kind of surprising that uh, she would come with him. She had developed a relationship with, with Lionel and his wife. And she brought along her sister mm. with her but didn't tell her what this was all about so here they come to our church building and we've got a church setting service, and we're having a memorial service for jeff and the sister doesn't know about this and so uh, when she finds out she's she's kind of enraged so she's sitting way back in the back of the auditorium with tears running down her face while the rest is up at the front talking about jeff and uh, about the faith that jeff had and, and the and the desire he had to, to, to turn to god and serve god and so forth and uh, I was able to talk about Jeff, and I'd let Lionel get up and talk, and then younger brother David got up and talk, and a few others got up to say something about, about Jeff and so forth. And at the end of the service, I, then I, I walked up to her, and I, I wanted to apologize. I'm, I'm sorry that your sister th did this to you. I thought it was kind of a terrible thing for her not to tell you what this was all about. Uh, and she said, well, she's actually it was very helpful to me. She says, now that I actually heard your story about Jeff, and that he actually be, did believe in God. She says, it's easier for me to forgive Jeff now than it was before. Huh. I thought, well, that's interesting. Uh, a lot of times when you don't know the story from having been around people who actually were there, 
it's very easy to form your own judgments. And so a lot of the victims' families are like that. They, they've been removed from Jeff. As far as they know, he's the guy who killed their relatives and so forth. So as far as they care about it, it's vengeance. Vengeance is mine. I'm going to have, have it all. You know. And if I can't do the vengeance, well, someone else is going to do the vengeance in my, in my place or in my name and so forth. And so they have that hope. Mm-hmm. But they don't seem to understand what God is really all about. Uh, the amazing thing about God, for me, is from Exodus 34 and verse 6, where Moses has asked to see God. And God passes in front of Moses. And God cannot do this quietly. God must speak about himself. And God begins to describe himself in terms of his great mercy and his grace and his uh, uh, not going to be angry for all, all, all time, you know, not hold anger against all everyone so, so, so for so many generations. And, all this sort of and at the end of it, says, oh, and by the way, I will judge the guilty. Uh, we get this idea when we read the passage like that, that God, we, we reverse it. We say, well, God is primarily a God of judgment. Hmm. And by the way, if the moon is right and, and if the, yes, the feeling is right and everybody's kind of settled, well, then by the way, you, you might have mercy. No, when God describes himself, he's primarily a God of mercy. Also, he's a God of justice. You can't pull the wool over his eyes, but he's primarily a God of mercy. We don't have an understanding of God that way. We don't see God being that way at all. Mm. So we have a hard time with the concept of God. We want to we want to play God in terms of judging. We want to say, I must... I must judge because uh, that's what God expects of me. And you don't understand because God's answer is, no, I am primarily a God of mercy. And if I can find a way to show mercy to this person, then we'll show mercy. And that's mercy is, is translated into his forgiveness. And so the concept that God can forgive is just incomprehensible to us human beings. We can't comprehend it because we don't understand who God is. We've been asked to play God in, in the sense of forgiving as God has forgiven. We don't want to do that. We want to play God in the sense of judging. That, that's our problem with God. So we completely misunderstand what God's all about. So so to the victims' families who have a hard time with this, it's because they don't really understand what God's all about. It's why they have a hard time with the idea of Jeff being forgiven. Uh, but they themselves have been sinful people. They themselves need to come to the point of, of turning to God himself and, and understanding what God's all about. Once a teenager asked me, what's the meaning of life? And I was a little bit you know, taken aback by the question, but then it occurred to me, well, the whole meaning of life is to come to believe in God through Jesus Christ. Jesus, he is the one, he came to, to tell you the story, tell you what the one who sent him said to say. He's, he's the one who did, what, who did the works of the one who sent him. So the whole point of our being alive is to come to understand that there is a God and that God can understand our situation and God loves it and God forgives us. Jesus would say of God, he knows when sparrows fall. He knows the number of hairs on your head. If God knows you so intimately that he knows what's going on in your life, then when you start assuming, well, God's abandoned me. God doesn't care. God doesn't love. You completely have no idea. You're looking at the, your own circumstances. You're looking at God through the lens of your own circumstance, but you're not looking at God as God has described himself. Mm. So we tend to rely upon the wisdom of man more than rely upon the revelation of God. I'm curious, how do you see God differently after your experience with Jeff Dahmer? Well, I think my understanding of God was developing at the time that I, I, I knew Jeff. It seemed to have gone uh, more, more deeper uh, since then. Uh, but yeah, I see God primarily as a God of, of mercy and a God of grace, uh, a God who understands, a God who wants to, uh, uh, doesn't want to destroy anyone. He, he wants us to, uh, to come to him and to understand what, what it's all about. 
but also an incredibly patient person. Hmm. Uh, God is very patient. We said, how, how can God allow a Hitler or a, or a, a Gaddafi or, or whoever you know, villain you want to pick on? How can God allow the guy to go on long? Well, because God is patient. God is trying to, uh, is, is uh, trying to uh, allow them to, to realize the error of their ways and come to understand that uh, we have a hard time comprehending what God is all about. Recently, I got to see the, the film, The Shack, which is based upon a book uh, written several years ago, where a guy's daughter is taken and, and killed and so forth, and, and the man's going through his grief and so forth, and eventually he goes to the shack to meet God. And in the process, he, they're struggling with the concept of God's forgiveness. And he has two children left, and, and uh, the one character says to him, well, you have a son and a daughter. Which one goes to heaven and which one goes to hell? You choose. Mm. Well, I can't choose, he says, because I love them both. Well, that's how God feels about the guy who killed your daughter as well as your daughter. God loves both of them, and God doesn't want to hurt, doesn't want to destroy either of them. So is God giving them the chance to come to their own? And, and I thought it was a very profound idea of demonstrating a concept of God that most of us don't seem to have. Mm-hmm. And we, we, we see God as a judge primarily. We don't see God as the merciful, uh, uh, loving father. So uh, I think the biggest the big biggest issue is, is understanding who God is. And the older I get, the more the better I, I, I come to that understanding. Mm. You know, tracking you down was a little difficult to do. Uh, I, I I wanted to have a conversation with you, and and we tried a lot of avenues to try to find you. But it's my understanding that you have kind of you know taken your information off the grid a little bit because of the reaction after the Netflix special that some people had. How did people respond to you as the guy that potentially uh, saved Jeffrey Dahmer? Obviously, we know Jesus did it, but not everybody was happy about that. Well, what's been the, the reaction like, here we are many years later, and this movie, this series comes out, and now you're back in the public eye? I'm not aware of how people reacted or responded uh, uh, other than what I personally experienced. People who find out that I'm the guy, they're often uh, happy and glad. You're you. Wow, that's amazing. That's wonderful. That, that sort of stuff like that. Uh, uh, my whole experience with the whole Jeffrey's story from the very beginning all the way to the end is that to my face, people have been very congratulatory. They've been very commending. They've been very honor, honoring me and so forth. Mm. They say, you, you did a great thing. You did a wonderful thing. I would learn later that some of them would would stab me in the back and say, "Well, what an idiot! What a fool! What a uh, he he's, he <laughs> doesn't know what he's dealing with. Doesn't know what he's talking about. Things like that." So I realized there's a certain hypocrisy with people that I'm dealing with. But to my face, everyone's always been very congratulatory. They've always been very uh, 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 they've always they've always said wonderful things to me. Mm. Some have said that you know they they thought that I was a blessing and so forth. Things along those lines. So I've I've not experienced or not heard uh, any of the criticism that, that you, you sometimes get, other than I recognize that uh, uh, people don't always want to hear the story. It takes a certain amount of faith to actually hear the story. If you don't have any faith, then it all becomes kind of foolishness to you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the story of, of Jesus dying on the cross. It's foolishness to those who don't believe. Well, okay. If you don't believe in Jesus, if you don't believe in the mercy of God, then the story of Jeff becoming a Christian or, or the story of Jeff getting forgiveness it's going to seem foolishness to you as well, too. So, okay, that's that's just the nature of people. We live in an unbelieving world. That's a hard thing for me to come to understand because I grew up believing that we live in a believing world. But no, we live in an unbelieving world. And the hardest thing of all for people to come to understand is that there is a God and there is a reason for faith. 
and that, and that God is, is very real. Sometimes we want to say, well, sometimes we act like in the Elijah story where Elijah makes fun of the prophets of Baal and the prophets of the Ashereth. Well, maybe he's on vacation or maybe he's away. Maybe he's busy. A lot of our people think the same thing about our God. Mm. Well, God's too busy. God's away. God doesn't make it. You know, God's not there. With, and you completely, you completely twist the thing around in, in the backwards uh, as opposed to what Paul would say to the Athenians. He's, he's right there. You can reach out and touch him with your own hands. That's kind of the way Paul describes it. God is, God is right there in our lives. But sometimes we just can't, can't see or don't want to see it uh, in, in my mind we, we rely more heavily upon the judgment of man than we do upon the revelation of god uh, trust the lord with all your heart proverbs says mm. do not rely or do not lean on your own understanding that's, that's our that's our fault we lean on our own understanding to the point that we don't trust in god and that's our that's the biggest problem that we have in this world today mm. well said I want to ask you about the day you found out that Jeff had been killed in prison. How'd you feel? Was it a sense of his his torment is over? Was it a sense of loss? Obviously, you developed a friendship with him. Um, walk us through that day a little bit. I heard about it on a, I think it was a Monday after Thanksgiving day. The last day I saw him was the day before Thanksgiving where he gave me a card telling me how much of a friend I was and how much he appreciated it my being in his life. And I really felt that he didn't really have any true friends. Uh, those who claimed to be his friends basically laughed at him because he did silly things for them. But it, it really wasn't, he didn't, I don't think he trusted people. I don't think he, I don't think he, he felt he could have something he could have, be confident in and so forth. So, so I, I felt that I was probably the only one that did that. So I heard about his death on the radio and that was a big surprise to me. I was quite shocked to hear about that. But then I knew that the uh, media is going to want to come to me to have to comments and so so I had to quickly go home and change into a more of a uh, preacher outfit, you know, <laughs> and then get to my office where they would come to me and, and and start taking pictures and talking to me and so forth, and and I got to work through my grief by talking about it all the time that that whole day that that, that, uh, that what's going on, uh, I got uh, phone calls from about a half dozen women who thought they were in love with Jeff because they'd been writing him uh, letters and he'd been writing back to them and so forth. And that was a big surprise to me because Jeff was supposedly a homosexual. And so uh, th that was a big, big shock. But it was mostly a matter of dealing with that. Now, earlier in July, Jeff had been attacked by a, a Cuban who thought if he could kill someone infamous, he could be sent back to Cuba. He wanted to be deported. So that's what he tried to do. So he, he, he took a, a scotch tape and, and a, applied a razor to a toothbrush and tried to cut Jeff's throat. Of course, the whole thing fell apart. And in the process, uh, uh, they both went to what's called the hole or uh, solitary confinement. Uh, afterward, then I met with Jeff, and then and the chaplain came and talked to me. And the chaplain made it very clear to me that the prison was going to make sure they, 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 they did special watch for Jeff because they didn't want this to happen again, that they were going to make sure that, that they would go, go out of their way. Hmm. So when Jeff is killed, and I hear the stories about how a guard goes off to listen to some music, another guard goes off to make a phone call, and the enemies are just left alone. I'm kind of like, wow, uh, everything you said to me just isn't true. I mean, they're just, they're not following through on this whole thing. And so I felt a little bit of betrayal on the part of the chaplain and on the part of the prison itself. And of course, later on, you, be, you begin to raise questions about, well, was there some kind of conspiracy? Was something going on behind the scenes? Or what was, I mean, there's, there's more I don't know than I do know. So I have no, no idea what, what's, what's, what's going on with all of that. 
but it was a, it was quite a surprise. Uh, uh, he was my friend, and I felt uh, bad that he had died uh, in that sense of, of my own loss. On the other hand, uh, he's with God now, so uh, he's he's in better hands than I could I could be with him. Also, <laughs> the biggest question I had in my own mind at the time was, uh, did I do enough to prepare Jeff to meet his God? That that was the biggest question that I had in my own mind. It, <laughs> uh, did I show him enough of God? Did I show him enough of the the love of God? That, uh, that he could understand what God is really all about. So when he enters death, he's he's not shocked and not terribly surprised, but he's he's able to say, okay, I I did I did everything I, I could do to, to serve you, God. One of the worst stories in the Bible is from uh, uh, Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Not everyone calls me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom, but he who does my Father's will. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we? And they start mentioning things that we would think, Wow, that's pretty spectacular! You know, they they cast out demons and they did miracles. And wow, the, if you do those things, it's pretty much a, a slam dunk that you you've got it made. And Jesus would say to them, "I never knew you. Depart from me. You, you know, go out of my presence." And kind of what? What's going on here? Well, you get back to what he said. Those who do the will of my Father is what matters. What what matters? So to me, the the, the biggest hor- the most horrible thing I can imagine is 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 going through life, going through death, and then meeting God, and God saying, I don't know you. What? But I served you all the I have no idea. Oh, come on. What's going on here? Mm. Uh, you know, that, well, because you made in your own mind what service to God was all about. You didn't serve God according to what God actually said. Mm. And so that, that's really what it comes down to. It's a matter of actually listening to God's word and paying attention to God's word instead of imagining in your own head what you think. Uh, serving God is really all about. And for a lot of people, that's what their faith is really all about. It's doing what they think is the right thing to do instead of what God actually says. Right. That is so well said. Oh, I love that. No, I think I was just reading about that this morning in a book about, you know, with the prodigal son, you have one guy that takes matters into his own hands and runs away from the father. And the other one that takes matters into his own hands and tries to control the father uh, by staying home and being a good boy and demanding different blessings. And I think we all, we all pick our path uh, in, in being a prodigal. Uh, Roy, your, your, uh, your book is called Dark Journey, Deep Grace. Tell us about why you wrote that and what your goal was in writing this book about your journey with Jeffrey. My original title for the book was I Called Him Jeff, because my idea was that he was, he's a human. The first thing I learned about him is he was a human being. And and his name was Jeff, and to treat him, treat him like like a, a human being, and so forth. As opposed to, I remember being in high school, and the, all the coach knew me by my last name. He didn't know my first name. Just you know, hey, Rutcliffe, do this or do that. You know, that kind of stuff. Okay, uh, but you don't know, really have no idea who I am. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a way of, of just distancing ourselves from somebody, just calling them by their their last names. So, so I I want to make the point that his, his name is Jeff, and let's, let's treat him as a human being. Uh, the, the title was changed by the publisher because they thought it was a better title, the idea of Dark Journey, Deep Grace. I thought, okay, well, that, that sounds like a pretty good idea. People ask me, why, why did I write the book? Well, uh, for me, it was, it was telling my story. It was telling Jeff's story. But most of all, it was telling God's story. It really was all about. Hmm. And, I, and I often make this point uh, uh, to people when I talk to them about my book, that even though you've never done things as bad as Jeff has done, there are times in your life when you're going to feel as bad about yourself as Jeff felt about himself. You're going to feel like you just did the most terrible things, and, and you should. And so you're going, to, you're going to, you're going to embrace what I call a bad commentary. I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm no good. I'm rotten. 
I don't deserve to live, uh, all kinds of things. Eventually, these kind of thoughts will lead you to a, uh, to a point of suicide. But in, point, in the process, you dig yourself into a deep hole, a deep pit that you can't climb out of. I, 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 I try to climb, but I can't climb because it's just too deep. So there's just no hope for me. I, I'm, I'm lost in this deep pit. Hmm. And, and the whole point of Jeff's story is that there's a hand that will reach down into the hole and grab your hand and pull you out if you hold on to the hand. And that's the hand of God. And to me, that's what Jeff's story is all about. That's kind of Jeff's legacy, if, if you would, or uh, what it means to be, uh, to, to, to be a, a believer in, in God is to pull you, is to get you pulled out of whatever kind of mess or a mucky mire that, that you're in yourself and, and that you can't seem to figure out how to get out. So much of the time we, we, we do more damage to ourselves than we do to others. And it's amazing how, how much damage we do. And yet God's able to overcome the damage that even we can do to ourselves. It's truly amazing when you think about God. Mm. Uh, Paul described himself as the worst of sinners. And uh, the guy who called me from Milwaukee told me a story. He said, they'd been studying the passage in Timothy where Paul described himself as the worst of sinners. And so, so he asked them in Milwaukee, who, do you, who would you say is the worst of sinners today? Well, after you get through your Hitlers and your uh, Stalins, or of course, Jeffrey Dahmer's name comes up because it's Milwaukee, of all things. You know, uh, the Jeffrey Dahmer story did to Milwaukee what the uh, assassination of John Kennedy did to Dallas. It, it, did, it did tremendous damage to the psyche of the city. So they really carried that uh, to a great, uh, uh, that hurt to a great uh, deal in their own hearts. And so he said, uh, so he passed it on to me. So I, uh, I was sitting there thinking about that, and a, a friend came up from Texas. And I shared him with that, that story, and the, and the friend said, no, I don't think so. I think uh, Paul would disagree. Paul would not say that Jeff is, a, is the worst of sinners. Paul would say that Paul was the worst of sinners. And I said, well, why do you say that? He said, because Paul was a man educated by Pharisees. He was educated about God. He understood what God was all about, and yet he turns against people who believe in God and tries to kill them because of a different faith in God. Whereas Jeff had no concept of, of God at all. Jeff had not even think about God at all. He was... He, uh, at most, he looked at a person's body and said, oh, I think that's a pretty body. I want to keep that, you know, that's something along those lines. It's kind of hard to e even compare the two. But uh, uh, but I thought, well, that made sense. So I told Jeff the story. And Jeff said, oh, I think I'm still the worst of sinners. And I said, no, I think you're just, uh, 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 I think you, you're just freaked out by your own crimes. Uh, you don't really understand what, what we're talking about at all. Uh, but Paul would still say he was the worst of sinners. And I, I, I think that's true. Although we would like to put that on to Jeff, what Jeff did wasn't nearly as bad as what Paul would claim he had done, which was go out of his way to kill people who serve God hmm. and, and ser in the name of serving God. Uh, that, that's what Paul was doing. That's what Jesus said would happen uh, to his apostles when he said the Pharisees would do that to him as well, them as well. Well, I'm so grateful that you would share this story with us because I think a big question that a lot of people have is, have I gone beyond the reach of God? Have my crimes, my sins, uh, which seem, as you said, as bad as you feel about your sin, Jeff felt about his, we all feel awful about the mistakes we've made and the decisions we've made. And we, we wonder, how did I get to this point? But for you to share this story and be so willing to put it not only in book form, but to come on podcasts and TV interviews and, and share this. It is so helpful for us to understand the true heart of God, of grace and mercy and forgiveness. And I just want to thank you uh, for not just being on this podcast, but for your legacy 
of telling people about the grace of God. Uh, there'll be a lot more people in heaven than just Je- Jeffrey Dahmer from what it is you've done. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for saying that. Well, it's been an honor to have you with us. Uh, I want to just say once again, thanks for being uh, on the show. And uh, uh, we're really grateful for um, for your time on the program. Hey, uh, Roy, let me ask you this question. We're going to do a series at our church the weeks after Easter called You Asked For It, where we're going to allow our people to, in the weeks prior, to write down their questions, and we're going to try to address a question each week. And there'll be questions like, uh, why do bad things happen to good people? And can we believe the Bible is true? You know, your standard questions. But I know one of the big ones will be, can God really forgive me? Um, I would love uh, to be able to share some of your story and uh, this conversation. Would you be all right with that? Oh, sure. That'd be fine. I'd be glad to. Glad, glad for you to do that. And let, let me ask you this. I don't want to presume anything, but I, it's one thing for them to see, you know, you and I with headphones talking over, you know, Zoom. But I have friends up in Milwaukee. Uh, if I were to come up there, do you think you could give me an afternoon and we would just film you and I having a cup of coffee talking about this? Sure, that'd be fine. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we'll be in touch about that. I want to wait till you guys thaw out before I head up there. Uh, <laughs> I don't. I don't do snow anymore <laughs> since I moved from Kansas. Yeah, well, it might be in April. Uh, maybe yeah. March. <laughs> April probably. Okay. Well, we'll be in touch. Roy, I, I'm so appreciative of you taking our call, and I'm, I'm grateful that we both worked with Leafwood uh, so that we had this connection, uh, and I'm, I'm thankful to meet another person that knows of Andover, Kansas, so I appreciate you, brother. Glad I could. Well, I've listened to that podcast now several times, and every time I hear the words of Roy Ratcliffe, I'm inspired by the grace of God, and I'm sure there's somebody in your life that would feel the same way, so make sure you share this with them could be a good spiritual conversation for you as well. If you ever hear somebody talking about that Netflix special about Jeffrey Dahmer, you could send this podcast over to them and say, you might listen to this. It might be interesting to you. Could prompt a spiritual discussion for you. Well, I'm so grateful for Roy coming on the show. And uh, next week, it's interesting, we put these back to back. We're going to talk to a therapist. (laughs) Maybe we need that after today's conversation. But Bjorn Bjornsson has been helping people in therapy for many years and has opened up an organization that is designed to create more ways for people to receive counseling and therapy. If you've ever considered going to counseling, if you've ever thought about, maybe I should check that out. I think he's going to help you understand why it's so important. So make sure you join us next week and we'll talk to you then. As always, keep it simple. Take a moment and subscribe to the podcast so you'll get it delivered every week. And subscribe to the Rusty George YouTube channel for more devotionals, messages, and fun videos. Thank you for listening to Leading Simple. Learn.